Well, this morning we are going to be worshiping Jesus again over Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. So I'd invite you to turn to Titus 3, and for reasons that will become clear in just a few moments, I actually want to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. So we'll focus on verses 3 through 8, but I want to begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us, Richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Father, we want to understand these things that are good and profitable for men. So I pray that you would come and help us now to hear what you say to us from your word, by your spirit, about your son. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever known someone who is easily sidetracked? Maybe they begin the conversation by telling you about how they went fishing this weekend. But then talking about fish makes them think of what they're going to cook for supper tonight and so their conversation shifts to the need to go grocery shopping and that makes them think about how they always get flustered in the self-checkout lane and that leads them to think about something else and something else and something else until after several minutes finally they get back to telling you what they caught at Lake Isabella. You ever have a conversation like that? You're thinking to yourself, maybe they should just fry what they caught at the lake and then they wouldn't have to worry about standing in the self-checkout line in the first place. Now I'm getting sidetracked. Have you ever had a conversation like that where you seem to be taken down several back streets only to get back to the main road? Then Titus 3, 1 through 8 may look somewhat familiar to you. Because Paul, in the middle of these eight verses, seems as though he's getting a little bit sidetracked. You'll notice he begins in verses 1 and 2 with a lesson in Christian ethics. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, and so on. But I want you to notice that Paul cannot linger long on that subject before his mind and heart begin to gravitate irresistibly, it seems, to something else. In fact, when you read the flow of Paul's thought here in these first eight verses of the chapter, it almost seems like verses 3 through 7 are what an English composition professor might call, in technical terms, a rabbit trail. Because verses 1 and 2 are the beginning of a paragraph about Christian ethics. And then verse 8 is the end of a paragraph about 
Christian ethics. But in between, there's quite an extended aside. It almost seems like Paul couldn't quite finish his thoughts about Christian ethics without getting sidetracked onto another topic. And you'll find these kinds of paragraphs all throughout Paul's letters. But what I want to say to you this morning is it's not that Paul was scatterbrained or that he was easily sidetracked. No. The letters of Paul, especially letters like Romans, show that he really was one of the most clear-headed thinkers that the world has ever seen. And so I say it's not that Paul was easily carried away, but that as we are seeing here in this passage, he was easily carried away by the gospel. That's what gets him, quote unquote, off track in verses three through seven. For Paul, no matter what he was talking about, whether it be ethics or his own travel plans or his imprisonments or his fast approaching death, his thoughts always seem to come back to the gospel of God's dear son, back to the good news of salvation full and free in Jesus. And that's the subject that draws him momentarily and wonderfully away from his primary train of thought here in Titus 3, the gospel. The good news of salvation, full and free, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's not so much that Paul has gotten us onto a rabbit trail in verses 3 through 7, but that he has taken us back to the narrow road that leads to life. And whether Paul sat down and planned that Titus 3 would include this gospel aside, or whether he just started writing the sentences and simply couldn't help himself, one thing is clear. Paul, along with the Holy Spirit who was driving his quill, wants us to be certain that Christian ethics don't come out of nowhere. Nor do they grow merely out of a strong will or a good upbringing. No, that's not the way it works. The only way anyone will ever be and do what God calls us to be and do in verses 1, 2, and 8 is if that person has been profoundly gripped by the gospel of verses 3 through 7. The only way you or I will ever be able truly to be and do what God calls us to be and do in verses 1, 2, and 8 is if we have been profoundly gripped by the gospel of verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. For instance, the reason why Christians ought to be motivated to malign no one, verse 2, and to show every consideration for all men, verse 2, is because we remember, verse 3, that we also once were foolish ourselves. And we know, verses 4 and 5, that God has shown consideration for us. That's why we don't malign other people, because of the gospel. And the reason why we ought to be careful to engage in good deeds, verse 8, is because God has granted us the renewing by the Holy Spirit in verse 5. In other words, because of what God has done for us in verse 5, making us new from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, we have no excuse for not doing good in verse 8. So do you see? Paul's aside in verses 3 through 7 is his way of reminding us that the only way the fruit of Christian ethics will ever spring up in our lives is if the seed of the Christian gospel has been pushed deep 
into the soil of our hearts. For Paul, everything comes back to the gospel. And I hope the same can be said of you. I hope the gospel is the very air you breathe. And if it is, you'll be delighted to notice something else here in verses 3 through 7 that at first glance may seem somewhat peculiar. Remember to whom this letter was written. Paul was addressing his thoughts to Titus, whom he had left behind as a missionary and church organizer on the island of Crete. In other words, Paul is writing to Titus, who is on the island of Crete, preaching the very same gospel by which Paul himself was so carried away. Titus is a preacher. So Titus already knew the gospel. And Titus already knew that Christian ethics can only spring from the gospel. And yet, Paul thought it necessary to announce the gospel to Titus anyway. Paul thought it necessary in verses 3 through 7 to proclaim the gospel to Titus, the gospel preacher. Paul thought it necessary even to Titus the preacher to remind him that we were once foolish ourselves, verse 3, but that when the kindness of God appeared, verse 4, he saved us, verse 5, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy through Jesus Christ our Savior, verse 6. I say to you, Titus knew these things. In fact, he was dedicating his life to proclaiming these things on the island of Crete. That's why we've been calling these sermons the gospel according to Titus. Because the gospel that Paul proclaims here is the same gospel that he left Titus to proclaim on the island of Crete. This was not only Paul's gospel, it was Titus's gospel. These were the things that Titus was preaching as well. And I have no doubt, in fact, that Titus could have completed Paul's sentences for him in verses 3 through 8. And yet, though Titus knew everything that Paul was going to say, Paul went ahead and said it anyway. Paul went ahead and preached the gospel to Titus again. And there's a lesson in that, I believe, for us. Namely that if we love Jesus and if we love his gospel, then we will delight to hear it again and again and again. We will delight to hear it even when we know exactly what the preacher is going to say. We will delight to hear it like we delight to see a favorite movie over and over again, even though we could finish all the sentences ourselves. The gospel is that good. And so I hope this morning, whether the truths found in Titus 3, 3 through 8 are brand new to you or whether you already know everything that I'm going to say, that you'll find yourself delighting once again in the good news that God saves sinners, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now we're going to look at that good news under a handful of headings, beginning first with our need for salvation. Verse 3, our need for for salvation. Why do we need a Savior? Why do we need good news and salvation from on high? Well, because we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That is who we were before Jesus saved us. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, that is who you still are this morning. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending your life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Now, it's one thing to sit and hear the preacher apply a verse like this to the congregation as a whole. We're all sinners. It's, it's one thing to hear that. It's one thing when we paint the portrait of sin with a broad brush. But has it occurred to you that your face is actually right there in the middle of this dark picture that Paul paints? Whoever you are, you are described in Titus 3, 3, and so am I. Now I realize you may not be equally tarred by every hair in Paul's brush. You may not be equally described by every adjective that Paul uses in this verse. But that's why Paul uses so many different ones. Because he wants you to see that somewhere in the chaotic crowd that he describes in verse 3 is a portrait of your face. Notice also that Paul used the pronoun we to start the sentence. We. In other words, Paul admitted that he himself was in the painting too. And so was Titus. And so are you and I. So look at us there in verse 3. We, all of us, are sinners. With your pastor and Paul and Titus at the top of the list. And with your face painted in the dark-hued portrait as well. Some of you were or are disobedient. In other words, the chief character trait of your life was, or maybe still is, rebellion. Sometimes against your parents, sometimes against your teachers, sometimes against your boss, sometimes against the government, sometimes against God and His church. Others of you were or are deceived, buying into the lies that tell you that happiness can be found in some version of the American dream, so that you once lived or perhaps are currently still living primarily for yourself. You've bought the lie. And here's how, how deep it is. Even when you serve God, you do so sometimes because of what you are going to get out of it. You're deceived. It's a good summary of my childhood and much of my early teenage years. Still others of you were or are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. I don't have to tell you what they are, I don't think. You know well just how many habits and lusts you have had or continue to have which would cause you to flee this building this morning if we could play the videotape of your conscience on the screen. And then on top of these things, Paul throws in these descriptions. Malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. In other words, Paul says some of us know very well what it is to be bitter to hate other people because they have more than we do or they get more attention than we do or have a better job or a better family situation or a better house. And that envy soon turns into malice, cutting and hateful thoughts, cutting and hateful words. And 
Though the thoughts don't always come out in words, the reason why they don't is simply, as usual, because we love ourselves. We love our reputations too much to get ourselves in trouble by giving vent to our malice and our envy. And so it still comes back to me. To my desires, to my wants. And that's what Paul is saying about us all. And here's the point. None of us is immune to this thing called sin. Not a single one of us. Some of us perhaps are as nice as can be, but we know how often we are nice just because it serves our own ends. Others of us would never hurt anyone, but we wouldn't really go out of our way to help them either. Most of us would never actually tell God to get out of our face. But when we do that to our parents and our teachers and our leaders, we show quite well what we think of the structure that God has wisely put in place in our lives. Do you see, if it's not one thing, it's another. All of us somehow find ourselves in the picture that Paul portrays in verse 3. All of us, if we are really honest with ourselves, know that we are foolish sinners. We are not at all what we should be. Indeed, we'd be embarrassed if anybody knew all the things that we know about ourselves. And we desperately need help, not only to get out from under the judgment that our sins deserve, but to actually stop acting so foolishly. We need good news. We need salvation. And God, by sending His Son to die the death that we deserve and to rise again from the grave in newness of life, has provided just what we need. But why? That's the second point. Our need for salvation, and then secondly, the cause of our salvation. Verses 4 and 5a. The cause of our salvation. To put this point in another way, having thought so desperately about why we need salvation, now we need to ask the question, why would God want to provide it? Why do we so desperately need salvation? Because we are desperate sinners, verse 3. But now, why would God want to provide it? What causes God to do this for us? Why would God want to forgive and restore and befriend and adopt as His children people who have spent so much of their lives forgetting Him, ignoring Him, and behaving foolishly? Why would He want us to be His children? Well, that's a good question. And the answer from Paul's pen is clear and resounding in verses 4 and 5. Why does God want us to be His children? Well, Paul says it has nothing actually to do with us. Isn't that what he says in verse 5? He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, according to His kindness, verse 4, according to His love for mankind. All the causes for God saving us are His, not ours. In fact, if we ask why God provided our salvation, the simplest answer is to say, Because He's God. That's what Paul is saying here. God by His very nature is kind. 
God, by his very nature, is a philanthropist. That's the Greek word at the end of verse 4, philanthropia. God, by his very nature, has a love for mankind. God, by his very nature, is merciful. That's why God saves us, because of who he is, not because of who we are. And if you this morning are not yet saved, that's the only reason why he will save you. Not because of deeds which you have done in righteousness, but because of his mercy. That is the cause of our salvation. God himself. And Paul wants us to make sure in verse 5 that we understand that well. So after stating things positively in verse 4, God saves us because of his love and his, his kindness. Paul circles back in verse 5 and reminds us of what he does not mean. God saves us in verse 4 because he's kind and generous and loving. And in verse 5, Paul says, in essence, and let us not forget that God's motivation for this salvation has nothing to do with us. He's not kind toward us or loving toward us because of anything in us. Salvation from sin is then in no way, shape or form repaid by more likely because of helped along by, deserved on account of, or added to by deeds which we have done in righteousness. Let me say that again. Salvation from sin is in no way, shape, or form repaid by, or more likely because of, or helped along by, or deserved on account of, or added to by deeds which we have done in righteousness. No. The fact that we are forgiven and loved and made new by the Holy Spirit is holy because of God's mercy. We bring nothing to our relationship with God except our sin and our need. And yet, when we come to Him carrying nothing but our sin and our need and trusting in His love and His kindness and His mercy... He saves us purely out of the overflow of his good and benevolent and generous heart. Now that is at one and the same time both humbling and wonderful news. Verse 5 is humbling news because Paul is reminding us that we are merely beggars. We haven't done anything to deserve God treating us like kings, and yet that is exactly what He does in Jesus. He treats us like kings. And He does so even though we have done absolutely nothing to earn such favor and could never in a million years repay Him. But that's also why the news is so wonderful. We don't have to repay Him. We don't have to deserve His gift. It is absolutely free, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to His mercy. Now let me ask you, have you really come to grips with this fact? Are you really living your daily routine as though God has saved you not on the basis of deeds which you have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy? In your daily life, have you realized how much God must love you in order to have forgiven your sins and made you new at no cost to yourself and to have given His only Son to die such a shameful death to have made it possible? 
I say, are you living your daily routine with these thoughts at the forefront of your thinking? Or do you live slavishly, hoping that you've done enough today to make God happy? Hoping that you can somehow be good enough tomorrow to stay in His good graces? Hoping that your quiet time this morning has been good enough for God to put His stamp of approval on the rest of your day? If that's how you live, hoping that you are good enough for God today, that's not good news. In fact, if you are living like that, hoping every day to do enough to please a miserly old master, then that's positively bad news. Because you'll never do it. But the good news is this. God does not love you today or any other day because of anything in you. God does not forgive you or help you or promise heaven to you because of deeds that you have done in righteousness. And He does not disqualify you from being forgiven or helped or promised heaven because of all the deeds that you have not done in righteousness. The cause of your salvation is God and God alone. His kindness, His mercy, His love. And the motivation for that love comes not from who you are or should be, but solely from within God Himself out of the overflow of His good and benevolent heart. God loves you because of God, not because of you. It's incredibly humbling, but it is incredibly freeing. Liberating if we can get our minds around it. God and not us is the cause of our salvation. Now thirdly, consider with me the outworking of our salvation. Verse 5b, the outworking of our salvation. I know the word outworking is not the sleekest word to include in a sermon outline, but I couldn't think of a better word to describe what Paul is explaining in the last half of verse 5. He's explaining the outworking of our salvation. Maybe it will help if I also put this third point in the form of a question. From verse 5a, we asked, why does God save us? But the question that Paul is answering in verse 5b is this, how does God save us? What does he do? What happens to a person when God saves him? Now we'll come back in a few moments and talk about what has already happened 2,000 years ago at the cross. And we'll finish up this morning by thinking about what happens as a result of God saving a person. Things like forgiveness and eternal life and so on. But right now we're thinking about what happens in that decisive moment in time when a person becomes a Christian. When God saves his or her soul. So what happens? How does our salvation work itself out in real time? How do we actually become Christians? Well, according to verse 5b, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In other words, both halves of that clause there are telling us that when God saves us, we are made new. We are regenerated or reborn. 
we are renewed. Whereas the prophet Ezekiel put it in Ezekiel 36, God takes out of us our hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh, with soft, teachable hearts, with hearts that now want to follow God, with hearts that don't want to continue living foolishly and in disobedience. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here in verse 5b. God saves us by making us new. New men and women, new boys and girls. The outworking of our salvation is that God puts new life within our souls. That is, new desires, new attitudes, new priorities, new loves, new principles, new hopes, new abilities to trust in the Lord and do good. And new ways of thinking about ourselves and our world and our God. All of those things begin to change radically and instantaneously, although not perfectly, when God saves us. Those things change radically and instantaneously, but they don't change completely or perfectly when God saves us. There is an ongoing work of the Spirit in us as well. But this is one way that we can know that we're saved. When God saves a person, he changes him or her from the inside out. So Paul is here reminding us that God does not merely save us from the consequences of our sin, but also from our sin itself. God does not merely save us from the consequences of our sin, but also from our sin itself. Or we might say God does not merely save us from sin's penalty, over our lives, but also from sin's power in our lives. God saves us from our sinful habits and desires and propensities. God forgives us and He changes us. God makes us right with Himself and He makes us new in ourselves. Now, as we said, the process of becoming new is not completed overnight, but it does have a definite beginning. At one and the same time that your sins are forgiven, your heart is also changed by the Holy Spirit. Those two things always go together. No person has ever been forgiven without also being born again to a new way of living. And we need to hear that clearly. Especially if we believe ourselves to have been, or if we know someone who believes him or herself to have been Saved, namely to have received Jesus as Savior, but never to have received Him as Lord. No. Everyone who has been forgiven at one and the same time has received the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Everyone who's received Jesus as Savior, the forgiver of their sins, is also renewed at one and the same time so that they begin to see Him also as Lord. They always go together. But now I want you to look at this word washing because it's a strange word here. What does Paul mean by the washing of regeneration? Is God washing us or is He regenerating us. Those would seem to be two different things. Either you're going to wash something and clean it up, or you're going to totally make it new. Replace it. Put new parts in the engine. Are you going to wash the engine, or are you going to replace all the parts? They seem to be two different things, and yet Paul places them together as though they were one single act. 
the washing of regeneration. So what does he mean? I think Paul, Paul probably wrote Titus 3.5 with Ezekiel 36 in mind. I've already mentioned Ezekiel 36 and God's promise there in that chapter to give his people new hearts. But let me now read you the promise in its entirety from verses 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what happens to us when we are born again, when we are renewed by the Holy Spirit, when we are regenerated. And did you hear the same twin emphases from Ezekiel that we heard from Paul? Both Paul and Ezekiel speak of the new heart in terms both of washing and renewing. Paul speaks of washing and regeneration, washing and renewing. Ezekiel speaks of being sprinkled clean and receiving a new heart and a new spirit. They both use the same pictures. But Ezekiel gives a little further clarification He explains that not only will God put a new spirit within us, but that he will also clean out the old idol worshiping spirit. I think that's what the cleaning is, that he's going to clean out the old spirit. Not only will God put a new heart in us, but he will clean out all the vestiges of the old heart. Or to put it in Paul's terminology, not only will the Holy Spirit do something new in us, but he will also wash out the old In other words, when God saves us, he does not merely put into us a new godly heart, but he also begins the process of cleaning out of us the old ungodly heart. Or to put it in a metaphor, it's not just that God sends a new godly man to live in the old dingy house of our souls. Now, he does do that. He sends a new man, a new heart, a new spirit to live in the house of our souls. But it's not that he only does that. It's that along with sending a new man to live in that house, he also sends the Holy Spirit to kick out the old man and to give the house a thorough spring cleaning. Paul puts it much more simply, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Does that make sense? I think that's the same thing that Paul is saying in Titus 3.5. It's not just that new things have come, but that old things have passed away. It's not just that you've been renewed, but that the old things have been washed away out of your life as well. So God saves us by cleaning out our old principles and attitudes and desires and priorities and hopes and loves and replacing them with new principles and attitudes and desires and priorities and hopes and loves and with a new ability to trust in the Lord and do good. He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewing 
by the Holy Spirit. And no one is saved without being so renewed. So then let me ask you, are you new? Have you been born again by the Holy Spirit? Have your principles, attitudes, desires, priorities, hopes, and loves, and abilities really changed? Has God's salvation truly begun working itself out in you? Now some of you, when you think back to what you once desired and loved, and what once took priority in your life, And then what you now desire and love and what now takes priority in your life can say, well, I'm certainly not where I want to be. I certainly want to see myself being renewed in my mind more and more every day. But yes, I can see, looking back over the course of my life, God has done amazing things. The old things have passed away, and new things have come, and new things continue to come. And others of you may have some more thinking and soul-searching to do. While you mull it over, let's turn to a fourth point that I think will be helpful to you. The foundation for our salvation. Verse 6. The foundation for our salvation. We've been rephrasing each of these headings into questions, so let me do the same here with this fourth one. When thinking about the foundation for our salvation, we might well ask, how is all this possible? Given what we read about ourselves in verse 3, how can God possibly forgive us and call us his own, and clean out our souls, and put new hearts within us, and grant us the help and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we know that God loves us, verse 4, but he's also the judge of all the earth, isn't he? And surely, as we've said before, we wouldn't expect a Hamilton County judge to acquit a known criminal just because he had a fondness for him, just because he loved him. No, he's the judge. He has to uphold justice. And surely we must expect God to do the same thing. We can't expect him just to forgive us because he's nice. He's the judge of all the earth. So how is all of this in verses 3, 4, and 5 possible? How is it possible for God to save us, to forgive us, to renew us, to grant us the Holy Spirit, even though we are known criminals? Well, I think many of you know the answer. God forgives and renews and grants the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 6. All the blessing that flows to us in the Gospel, all the things that the Holy Spirit is working out in our lives are worked out through Jesus Christ. Only because of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us does God save us. And that makes verse 6 the linchpin of this passage and the foundation for everything else that Paul says. Jesus Christ is our everything. Salvation comes to us only because He died and He rose again on our behalf. Now in this connection, in order just to demonstrate 
that Jesus really is the foundation for all the good things we're reading about in this passage. Let me draw your attention for just a moment or two back to verse 4, where Paul says that God's love has appeared. When his kindness and his love for mankind appeared, Paul says. Now we noticed the word appeared a few Wednesdays ago when we were studying chapter 2, verse 11. And we need to notice again, notice it again today because there is a gold mine of truth and encouragement waiting to be unearthed beneath this one word. So think with me about the word appeared. It's actually a rather peculiar way to refer to love. It's peculiar that someone would say, love appeared. Because the word appeared is a more physical word, isn't it? In other words, we normally use the word appeared not to describe intangible concepts like love, but in reference to concrete objects. When we speak of intangible ideas like love or grace or kindness, we can speak about those things being felt or explained or about in poetry. But physical objects like the sun or our neighbor or our lost keys are the kinds of things that we normally refer to as having appeared. Physical things appear. And yet Paul speaks of love, which is an intangible thing, as having appeared. He says that love intangible has appeared in a tangible way. And therefore, I believe what Paul means in verse 4 when he says that God's love for mankind appeared is that the forgiving, transforming, saving love of God is more than just a concept to be explained or an idea to be known and felt. It is those things. We must explain the love of God. We must know it and feel it. But Paul says that in addition to that, the love of God has actually appeared tangibly somehow. And how is it possible that God's love would appear tangibly? Well, because it appeared in a person, in Jesus, the God-man who is all love. Jesus is God's love for mankind incarnate. I think that's what Paul is getting at in verse 4. The love of God appeared. How? In the manger in Bethlehem. In Galilee as He walked and taught and healed and blessed the children. On the road to Jerusalem as He prepared to lay down His life. On the cross outside the city as He cried, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? In the tomb as he lay there dead for us. In the tomb as it was empty and his body as it was risen. That's how the love of God appeared in Jesus. And in his tangible actions of love toward us. Most overwhelmingly the act of his laying down his life for our sin. The love of God has appeared in a person, Jesus and in His death on the cross. Greater love has no one than this, John fifteen thirteen, that one lay down his life for his friends. And this is love, 1 John four ten. Not that we loved God, 
Remember Titus 3.5? Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see? What Paul is hinting at in verse 4 is that God's love for mankind is more than just a good feeling. It's tangible. God's love has appeared in the person of His Son and in the gift of His cross. And all the blessings of this passage, all the blessings of salvation, therefore come to us through Jesus Christ. He is our everything. So let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's what Paul says, isn't it, in verse 8. The blessings in this passage belong to those who have believed. It's not that everyone in the world takes in the blessings that are spoken about in this passage. They are for those who have believed. So have you believed? Are you trusting in Jesus alone to forgive you, to make you new, to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit? And if not, would you do so this very moment? Would you entrust your soul to Jesus? He's our everything. He's the foundation for it all. Now, finally, let's hear what Paul says about the results of our salvation. What happens for us and through us because God has saved us from our sins in verses 7 and 8? The results of our salvation. Well, three things happen. Three effects. Three results of God saving us. Not by works which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Three things happen, at least. First, we are justified. Verse 7a. Justified. To put that in a word picture, that means that we've traded places with Jesus. He has gone to the cross and taken the punishment that we deserve. And we are given by God to share in the reward that He deserves. We are both forgiven of all the bad that we have done. And we are treated by God as though we had done the good that Jesus has done. We are declared to be righteous in God's sight. So if you think of your soul as a giant blackboard with all of your sins written on it, justification is not only that God erases all the sins from the blackboard. He does that, but he also goes on to fill in that empty space with the righteous things that Jesus has done. God declares you completely forgiven and completely righteous like Jesus in his sight. You have traded places with Christ. That's what it means to be justified. And that's one effect of our salvation. It's a marvelous thing. A second effect of our salvation is that we have the hope of eternal life. Verse 7b. Because we've been justified or declared righteous in God's sight, there is nothing keeping us from going to heaven. There is nothing between us and heavenly reward. Not because we've deserved it, but because Jesus has deserved it for us. And if we're trusting in Him, then we're in. 
Our sins are forgiven. Our souls are right with God. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy through Jesus Christ. And therefore, through Jesus Christ, nothing can take away our reward. If we belong to Jesus, we have the certain hope of eternal life. And then the third effect of our salvation is that we will be careful, verse 8, to engage in good deeds. And now we've come full circle, haven't we? Now we've come to the end of Paul's five verse long gospel parentheses. Now we remember what got him started on this subject in the first place. He wants us to live right. Indeed, God wants us to live right. He did not forgive us and change us from the inside out so that we could, like a dog, return to our own vomit. No. Real Christians appreciate the fact that they've been forgiven and are therefore motivated to stop dishonoring God who's been so kind and merciful to them. And not only that, but real Christians have been changed so that they now have the ability to do differently than they once did. Christians, having been saved by God's grace, have a new motivation to obey and a new ability to obey. A new motivation to engage in good deeds and a new ability to engage in good deeds. And be careful here. It's not that they think, it's not that we think that we must do good so that God will love us and forgive our sins. No. Remember, He loves us and saves us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Or, to put it another way, He saves us, He loves us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but on the basis of deeds which Jesus has done in righteousness. And the Christian understands that. Therefore, he's not trying to do good deeds so that God will love him or save him. He knows that his good deeds are not the basis of God's love for him, not the basis of his salvation, verse 5, But he also knows, verse 8, that good deeds are the fruit of it. Good deeds are the result of his salvation. So this morning, if you are among those who have believed God, then be careful to engage in good deeds. And if you've never yet believed God, be careful of thinking that your good deeds can save you. No, if you've never yet believed God, Make sure you understand verses 4, 5, and 6 first. Make sure you understand that if you are to be saved, it will be not on the basis of deeds which you have done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy through Jesus Christ. You mustn't do good deeds to save yourself, but believe God. And then... Everything will change. So whoever you are this morning, would you join with those who have believed God?